In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask that you be here with us and inspire us to open our minds and our hearts to hear what you have to say to us uh, through Holy Scripture and what feeble words that might come from up here. So we ask your blessing on each of us, and we just give you praise and thanksgiving and all things in Jesus' name. Today we are going to do a little repeating of last week because it is necessary in order to carry what we learned last week over uh, and continue. And that's true with all of the Bible. When you take Bible study uh, programs such as this or from anyone else, you can't at the end of the of the program, uh, put your book away and say, good, I've done that, been there, done that, and set it aside. All of the books of the Bible, all 73 of them in a Catholic Bible, are connected. And if you have your handout from last week, and I do encourage you to bring all of the handouts with you, and in a form of some kind. But if you'll take this for a moment. This is how the entire Bible is divided, you might say. There are four different divisions, you might say, of the books of the Old Testament. There are 46 books in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. All right. The four in the Old Testament are divided by the Pentateuch, which is the first five. It's what the Jewish people refer to as the Law or the Torah. The next book of the historical books, those start out with the book of uh, Joshua, Judges, Esther, Ruth, etc. Um, then you have the prophetic books, and those are all of the 15 literary prophets. Right? When I say literary prophets, that differentiates them from the non-literary prophets, which are generally referred to as Elijah and Elisha. But the literary prophets are those who left writings and there are 15 of those in the Old Testament. They begin with Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and then they go on. And they are in there, unfortunately for us, not by the date in which they uh, served God, but by the number of words in each letter. Isn't that something? Yeah. Uh, so, obviously, Isaiah was the longest, so it becomes the first one, and then Ezekiel is the next uh, longest, and there's the second one, etc., etc., down through all 12, or 15 of them, okay? Incidentally, though, in the New Testament, Paul's 13 letters are in there in the same way. Not by the date in which they are written, which is confusing to some people, but by the length of that. Okay. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go along. But all of the 
four sections or four groups of books in the Old Testament point to the event of the coming of the Messiah and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. All right? So they are all connected in some way. Now, Jesus is never mentioned in the Old Testament, but the word the Messiah or the Anointed One and the word of the Anointed One, when translated from the Aramaic or the Hebrew into the Greek and then to the Latin and then to the English, comes out Christ. Right? A lot of people ask me, well, was Christ Jesus' last name? <laughs> no. In those days, they didn't have last names. It is a title, and it refers to the Anointed One of God which you will find frequently uh, in the books of the prophets of the Old Testament. But you, can, you will not find Jesus or Christ in the Old Testament whatsoever. Uh, that is, as I said, a translation uh, from the Aramaic or the Hebrew through the Greek to the Latin Vulgate, then to English. Okay. The New Testament is grouped pretty much somewhat the same. The Gospels, and they would be sort of comparable to the Pentateuch. There are four Gospels. There are five books in the Pentateuch. The Acts of the Apostles and the Book of Revelation are considered among the historical books of the New Testament. But that, that, you have to take that with somewhat of a grain of salt. The Acts, yes, but not so much revelation. The doctrinal letters, that is, the doctrinal letters of primarily Paul, Peter, and John, okay, and then the pastoral letters. These are the last three letters of St. Paul written while he was in prison, okay. Uh, they all pertain to Jesus Christ in some way. The Old Testament is the foretelling of the eventual uh, culmination, you might say, of God's plan of salvation in the event of Jesus Christ. Jesus then comes and fulfills the teachings and the prophecies of the Old Testament, and then the New Testament books pick up what Jesus did in the Gospels, what he said, what he did, and, you know, his life, death, and resurrection, you might say. And then the letters actually explain how they affect us today, what they mean and how they affect us. All right. So that's kind of a brief overview of the Bible itself. I know that's rather quick and so forth, but we do have to move on. But that's why I feel that you should bring these um, handouts with you, because we will refer back to them, particularly that one and the other side of that page, which is the diagram of God's plan of salvation. Alright. Very important. Yes, Dick? Last week you commented that 
Paul wrote his letters before the Gospels were written. Yes. Now, I noticed on your handout here, you say the last date was 53, but he wrote a long time after that. Oh, yes. Was there an overlap? Was he, the Gospels being written before he finished his letters? Uh, they were probably in process, but not published. No, they were not disseminated until after his death. He died about 80? No, uh, around the year 67 A.D. So he died before Jerusalem was destroyed? Yes. Yes. All right. Uh, and we'll get into that because it sets up our question, and I'm sure some of these mind here, or at least I hope it did. Uh, if Paul's writings and his preaching was written before the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what did Paul teach? I'm going to leave that as a question for a few minutes. Because I don't know, we're sort of jumping the gun here a little bit. What I'd like to do is have you pick up from last week or this week, uh, this page here. Okay? Because one of the things that will make this course easier for you, and one that's very important, not only for this course, but whenever you hear the readings of the letters of Paul from the pulpit on Sundays or any other time, hopefully you will understand a little better where he's coming from. So we want to go through and do a little bit more discovery of who is Paul. Now a lot of people are confused because you often hear the word Saul and other people will use Paul or Saint Paul. It's all the same person. Okay? Saul of Tarsus was born in, obviously, Tarsus, uh, which is within the province of Galatia, or Cilicia, which is in southern Turkey today. But he was both Jewish from his mother's side and Roman from his father's side. Being born in that particular province, which was a Roman province, part of the Roman Empire, he was a Roman citizen, which was very important to him later in life. We don't know too much about Paul, except what we get out of the Acts of the Apostles and out of Paul's letters himself. There are no other writings that refer to him. But Paul of Tarsus was very well educated, primarily by a man by the name of Gidlade. I've gotten tongue twisted right there. Gamaliel. Okay. Gamaliel, who was a prominent Pharisee in Jerusalem. So, 
Saul was educated by Gamaliel in Jerusalem, a very prominent person and in a very prominent area. He became almost a fanatic in his uh, adherence uh, to the Torah of the Jewish faith. And as he grew up, he became uh, instrumental in persecuting the people of the New Way, which Christianity began to be called. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So the people following the time period of Christ's uh, death and resurrection became, began to call their beliefs and their practice of Christianity they didn't call it at that time, but nevertheless, of what Christ's teachings were, they began to call themselves uh, the new way. But that didn't mean that they separated themselves from the Jewish people. They performed and they executed whatever they were told, primarily the breaking of the bread ceremony in their homes, in addition to keeping up the Jewish laws and going to the synagogue, all right? And that was fine, because it was God's hope, Jesus' hope, that eventually all of the Jewish people would eventually accept the new way. Unfortunately, you can't get any large group to all agree to everything. You're always going to have some who have different opinions. But nevertheless... Let us go on. At a given time, well, let me back up a wee bit, because I'm going to work with both of these uh, things, because I think it's important that you have an understanding of a timeline. And one of the problems of the New Testament writings is that there's no indication of what year they were written in, or what year they referred to. That wasn't important to the writers of the time, and besides, if they did, what calendar would they use? Because at that time, there were many calendars involved. Julius Caesar tried to establish what was called the Julian calendar, and it was accepted, but only in the Roman Empire, but not by a lot of the people within the empire. So he had all of these different calendars, so it probably wouldn't have made much difference if they did put time periods in there. Most time was considered from one major event to another, one king or one emperor to another, or how many uh, full moons there were. Remember, the Jewish people went by the lunar calendar, all right? the time periods and so forth between various uh, prominent holidays or holy days. That's how they kept time. Uh, So you have a little bit of problem here. Nevertheless, from what we were able, we are able to gather, is that Paul was born approximately 10 to 15 years after Jesus Christ. So if we accept the fact that Jesus was born in year one, we know that that isn't true. But let's, for the sake of 
explanation, we accept that. Uh, Paul was born somewhere between the year 10 and the year 15 AD. Uh, he went on as a very young person, uh, educated by Gamaliel, as we said earlier, and probably around the year of his 20th birthday, he began to uh, persecute, along with others of course, uh, those people who followed the new way because they were thought to be heretics. And particularly when they started to bring their non-Jewish friends into the synagogue, that was uh, a big no-no. Excuse me. You had a question? Yes. If Paul presents himself to study under a Pharisee, would that necessarily make him a Pharisee? Because nowhere have I learned that he was a Pharisee. Oh, yes, by all means. And he boasts about it. Yes, in one of his letters, I don't remember which one offhand, but he boasts about being a strong Pharisee up to the point of his conversion. Was there a difference between those who followed Pharisees and those who were accepted in as a Pharisee? He was almost a fanatic. Okay. Yes. And of course, that's what caused him to go off and persecute uh, the Christians. Yes, I know don't mean. Okay. Well that this, this chart here says he was born ten or fifteen years after well, starting with AD that would be after Christ died. No, after Christ's birth. AD means after Christ's birth or the year one. Yeah. A little disconnect. You said he was born between ten and fifteen and then when he was twenty, that would make Christ hadn't even started his his preaching by thirty. There is no indication that he ever met Christ. Okay. I want to read something out of another book. That talks about the time and the disconnect between uh, a lot of dates. Alright? It says, it is not easy to harmonize the dates and information about where Paul went after his call that are given in Acts uh, chapter 9 and Galatians chapter 1. Nor are Acts 15 and Galatians 2 easy to reconcile regarding the Jerusalem Council. Luke's information cannot be simply dismissed, though, even when it does not agree with what Paul himself says, for two reasons. First, Galatians 1 and 2 are obviously written in a state of passion and defensiveness. Um, uh, defensiveness, all right, sorry. Paul, not Luke, may be going out of his way to prove a point, namely his independence from and equality from the Jerusalem apostles. And it goes on and on. In other words, we all, all scholars recognize that there is a disconnect or confusion in the dates. 
but we just have to accept that and move on because there's no way to correct it. The point being, though, that he must have started persecuting the, the new way, the Christians, almost immediately after Christ died. Probably, probably, yeah. Because the biggest problem with the new new Christians, whether they're converts or from Judaism or converts uh, from some other faith, is they could not enter the temple. And yet, because the converts from Judaism wanted to continue being Jews, they didn't know any better, nobody's told them to stop, uh, that created a problem. They couldn't bring their converted friends in. And that's what started the persecution. The persecution that the Christians began by the Jews themselves, who thought that they were infidels, or they were uh, traitors, or whatever you want to think of. Okay. But some ways along the line, when Paul was, or Saul of Tarsus, was on his way to Damascus, to, again, search for people of the new way to bring them back, and he had authority from the rulers of the time. Uh, he was struck by a light from the sky. Not by lightning, but from a holy light from the sky. And the men who were with him heard, along with Paul, of course, the voice that Jesus says to Paul, Paul, or Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Keep that in mind. Why are you persecuting me? Now, Saul wasn't persecuting Christ. He was persecuting the followers of Christ, right? But it connects his that the persecution of the followers of Christ represent the church. And the church is the body of Christ. Then and now. And so when Christ says to Saul on the road to Damascus, why are you persecuting me? He's really saying, why are you persecuting my church? Saul, of course, kind of not silly, you might say, falls off the horse, and as he gets up, he's temporarily blinded. And so his helpers, he is then told by God to go into Damascus where he'll be met by a person, Ananias, who will take him into his home and care for him, and he will then be told what to do. We aren't told exactly all the details, but if you read out of Acts of the Apostles and some of Paul's letters, you'll get the gist. But he was there for three days or so until he is... Uh, less healed and converted, you might say, almost immediately, and baptized. And when he is baptized, the scales from his eyes fall off, and he can see again. Now, the thing is, in Luke's Acts of the Apostles, it says he immediately got up and started preaching. Well, that would be essentially impossible because that would be such a complete switch from one lifestyle, you might say, and one belief system to another. 
that it couldn't happen, and it didn't. Paul, I mean, yeah, Saul tells us later in Galatians that he didn't get up immediately and start preaching, but he went to Arabia. Okay. Now, we don't know where in Arabia he went, but we kind of certainly think that in the Sinai Peninsula, which was a part of Arabia at the time, Mount Sinai is where Moses received the Ten Commandments from God himself, and there has been uh, for centuries upon centuries a monastery there uh, by the Sisters of St. Catherine, I believe it is. Um, of course, the Sisters of St. Catherine didn't exist there way back at Paul's time, but nevertheless there was uh, a shrine there indicating that that was the mountain by which uh, God gave the Ten Commandments. So we kind of think that that's where uh, Paul went, but we're not sure, and it doesn't make too much difference, all right? But he stayed there for a while, and while he's there, he has these tremendous visions, which are explained very briefly in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Um, and that is very important for you to understand. The visions that he received at that particular time contained, you might say, an infusion of the theology that he was to go out and preach and teach. Remember, this is before any other writings of the New Testament existed. So he couldn't, and he didn't depend on any of the other apostles telling him uh, who Christ was. It all had to come from these visions. And it's important because it is God himself, through the Holy Spirit, who is giving him all of this information regarding the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, the information regarding the Last Supper and the future of the church and the Trinity. Okay. Because Paul talks about all of those things uh, in bits and pieces throughout all of his letters. Right. So that's important that you understand that because that is what is behind Paul's strong insistence that he is accurate and correct in what he preaches and teaches. Because it sets up another problem. When the word starts getting around, not only in Jerusalem, but out, way out, because Christianity started to spread tremendously uh, fast, uh, and in detail, of course, why? Through the efforts of the Holy Spirit. And the problems that arose, because it was like, this is contrary, a lot of it is contrary to the teachings of Judaism at the time. Now, you have to remember that the teachings of Judaism at the time grew out of, first of all, the Ten Commandments, the teachings of Moses, 
which were then assembled into the Torah, or the first five books of the Old Testament. But as time moved on, the people started taking those teachings, the basic teachings of Moses that came from the Ten Commandments, and started manipulating them into fitting their lifestyle and their needs and their wants. The primary purpose of Judaism in the first place was to take the word of God given to them by the Ten Commandments and through the teachings of Moses and carry it out to all the nations around them. Wherever Judaism landed, and remember it moved in many different places over a period of time, uh, it was to educate the population or the nations around them. And the word nations is important. Whenever you study the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, the word nations is comparable to the word Gentile to the people of the Jewish faith. Anybody who was not a Jew, a committed Jew, circumcised for the men, was a Gentile. And that was a dirty word. If you were called a Gentile, it was like, well, you were, well, you were called. Okay? The whole idea here is that it's just the opposite of what God wanted. They even set up rules that, uh, if you recall, the ten tribes that grew out of the family of Jacob, the ten sons that established tribes and so forth. It got to the point where one tribe could not associate with the other. Uh, people could not intermarry. It got so bad, you know, and as time went on, that sort of fell apart, particularly after the Babylonian uh, captivity and the return. But the idea of marrying outside of Judaism, oh, that was a big no-no, and it still is today. You get a Hasidic uh, Jewish family, and one of the members of that family moves out and marries a non-Jewish person, Oy vey. Yeah. You know, that person is uh, just kind of almost considered dead. Uh, that is exactly the opposite of what God wanted. He wanted the Jewish people to be a model society of love thy neighbor, love God and love of neighbor, and have it so that it would reflect out the goodness and the love between each other would reflect out to the other nations around them. Never happens. It still doesn't happen. So that's the primary problem uh, when at the time of Paul, or after Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, when the apostles started to preach to all people, Remember, at one point in time, they were told not to go into Samaria because they were intended to preach and teach only to the children of Israel, which was correct. But after the death and resurrection, or you might say 
at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus commands the apostles to go out and teach all nations, all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that command, not only to the apostles, but to all of the disciples, filters down to all of us today. That is part of our mission today, is to preach and teach to all nations. But now, before you go, I can't do that. Uh, It is not saying that you have to go and get a soapbox and go down in downtown or whatever and preach and teach. It is to you are have a duty to reflect your Catholic viewpoint to all of those around you. How many of you, when you go to a, a restaurant, uh, pray the prayer before meals openly in a restaurant? How many of you don't? See? That is just a, just a minor example that you are actually required to do. Not by laws of the church. That's, there is no law of the church that says you have to pray, pray in a restaurant, but that is implied as part of being a Catholic. It's important that you not hide your faith. There's this other statement, well, the thing that you don't talk about in polite society is politics and religion. And that's wrong. Politics, I don't mind. Uh, that today is uh, it's not worthwhile discussing. But uh, religion, uh uh-huh. And it's not that you have to deliberately uh, strike up a conversation to a stranger. Well, how are you today? And uh, have you prayed this morning? You know, that's kind of. Uh, I had a neighbor. Uh, your lady is deceased now, but it got to be almost too much. You know, every other word was "Oh God bless you" and Jesus with a door rule and oh, you know, this it was just way too much. I tried to avoid her after a while. <laughs> Because, you know, you're not supposed to beat people over the head with your faith. But you are supposed to reflect who you are and what you are. For example, uh, dirty jokes. Now, I like a good joke as well as anyone. And we even had a few in here last week. Um, but there is a uh, limit to just how far you can go. Okay? Uh, and... Rather than getting up and making a big huff about it, uh, the polite thing to do is not laugh, not smile, not accept the joke, and let people know that. There are little things that you can do and that you should do to reflect the fact that you are a Catholic. Let's move on. I almost forgot where we were, you might say. Hmm? After Paul is converted, after he goes to Arabia, 
He then goes back to the place of beginning, you might say, Damascus, and begins to establish these little church houses. Remember when we were talking uh, and teaching uh, the prophet Isaiah uh, a few months ago, last spring, we talked how when they were captives in Babylon, they established these little synagogues in the homes as uh, teaching facilities. Well, it was the same process that was used by Paul to establish little house churches throughout all of the places that he went. And as you probably know, Paul went on what is generally considered three separate journeys uh, to establish his uh, little churches where he would go and establish himself and start preaching and teaching. Now, what did he teach? Because there was no other written books at that time. What did he teach? Alright. From the visions that he received while in Arabia, he taught the meaning of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because he taught primarily non-Jewish people, uh, they were very interested you know, I don't want to call them pagans, that sounds a little a little crude to me. Uh, but the people that he talked to, uh, let's call them the Greeks, all right? Because most of them spoke Greek, whether they were actually of Greek background or not. Remember, Greek was the primary uh, language of the elite at that time. And most of the New Testament was written in Greek. Alright. So, he taught the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the importance of it in the process of fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament. But now, for those people who were not Jewish, they wouldn't have understood what the prophecies of the Old Testament were anyway. So it didn't make a lot of difference. So he didn't harp on and he didn't refer to uh, the Old Testament that much. Now on the other hand, if you go to uh, Matthew's Gospel, every other sentence or so, Matthew uses the phrase or similar phrase this was done to fulfill uh, the law or uh, the prophecy here and there, which was in the Old Testament. Paul doesn't do that because he's speaking to a whole group of people who never understood the Old Testament and had no background or understanding or care. So he had to start over with something new. And this is what he did. The whole idea of life eternal through the belief of the life, death, and resurrection and following the teachings of Christ. That's all he had to begin with. That's all there was. And the breaking of the bread ceremony that I referred to was really the beginnings of our Mass. And it was based in format somewhat on the Jewish form of communal uh, worship in the homes, where 
after the ordinary supper meal in the evening, you know, whatever was served, uh, that was fine. But at the end of that was a brief prayer time, the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the wine and the saying of the same words, this is my body, this is my blood, and so forth, uh, and a little more prayer. And this seemed to be pleasing to the people that he was preaching to, because Christianity, obviously through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, spread tremendously throughout the whole Mid-East region. But it created a lot of additional problems. One of the problems is that some of the Jewish converts, beginning in Jerusalem, which was very, very uh, conservative, you might say, began to be concerned because people were getting away from the Jewish traditions, particularly those that were mentioned in the Torah, or part of the 613 Jewish laws. They were sort of abandoning those in order to partake of the teachings of Paul and some of the other apostles. So, a few of these converted Jewish people started saying that Paul and the other apostles were wrong, that they had to go through and the converts from the non-Jewish people had to go through the Jewish rite of circumcision and become a practicing Jew before he or she could become a Christian. And that set up another kind of problem. So the confusion that caused. So, as it is explained in Acts chapter 15, and I would hope that all of you would read what is recommended by the handouts that I give you, but in Acts 15, it talks about a council that was called by all of the main people, that is Peter, James, and John, and Paul included with Barnabas and Titus, uh, and as many other apostles that were available. They all came together in Jerusalem, and this was what was called the Council of Jerusalem, to discuss whether or not, the main subject was whether or not non-Jewish people coming into accepting Christ and being baptized, whether or not they had to go through the Jewish rite of circumcision and observe the Torah. And it was decided that this was not necessary, that that would not be anything that would be beneficial to them and bring them closer to the teachings of Christ. So what they did at the end of this council was to begin to write letters out to the various uh, house churches saying that that was no longer necessary, that they did not have to go through the rite of circumcision uh, and observe the details such as the dietary laws and the holy day or holiday laws 
mentioned in the Torah. The only thing that they had to do was to have one wife uh, abstain from meat of strangled animals uh, because that was signifying that they were partaking uh, of the Jewish ceremony of the slaughter and sacrifice of the lamb. And there was one other minor requirement. Okay, uh, but you can see by doing that, they are adding uh, sort of fuel to the fire, you might say, by letting people know in writing now that they didn't have to observe the Jewish laws. And that is what was the beginning of the separation of Christianity from Judaism. And it took a long time for that to happen. But that is actually the beginning. It's called the Council of Jerusalem. And it is equal to, and you've all heard about Vatican II, I'm sure, that took place in 1965, 62 to 65, you might say. Vatican II was the 21st of such councils where the church comes together under the authority of the Pope to discuss major issues or problems that have crept up within the church and to get it straightened out and to write uh, the dogma or the doctrine uh, of what is correct. Uh, Vatican II produced 16 major documents out of which came a lot of other interpretations, but nevertheless. And the councils of the church, as they say, 21 of them, or 22 if you want to include the Council of Jerusalem, the reason that is not included in the listing of uh, ecumenical councils is because there is no other uh, documentation or records of it other than what is in Acts uh, chapter 15. All of the other councils, beginning with the Council of Nicaea in five and four, no, Council of Nicaea in 325, that had documentation that still exists to this day. Okay. And all the others uh, down through history, total of 21 uh, councils. Uh, the purpose of those councils, as I said, is to really uh, correct in the early days, it was to correct or put down heresies. Later on, it was to correct or change things to bring them up to date. Or, as you know, it's easy when people start uh, interpreting uh, doctrine or teachings or even simple things. Uh, start changing the words here and there and eventually... Uh, Meaning begins to change a little bit, so forth. So these councils are held every so often. In the beginning, it was like every 25 to 50 years. As time went on, the distance between each one stretched out. Uh, we call the one that was the most recent, Vatican II, um, the very latest, but the one prior to that, uh, Vatican I, was uh, almost a hundred years before that, and then you had others uh, before that every hundred uh, so years. Okay, uh, 
I took a course one time uh, on church doctrine and law, and one of the teachers, a, a great uh, one from Ireland, says, Oh, after every one of those, after every one of those councils, it takes almost a hundred years for everybody to accept them, and that's because those old guys had to die out. <laughs> and that's true. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So are we to look at this question of following the Jewish religion first and then becoming a Christian? That this was settled, but we don't call it a council, is that correct? We don't, well, no, it's called a council. It's just not included in the listing of the official councils of the church because there is. Well, there were several gatherings, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they were councils. Yeah. Just like Pope Francis now has called a synod of bishops to convene later this year. Uh, that will not be a council unless he calls it and holds it at a later date. It could evolve into a council, but at the present time it is not going to be a council. Yes, Cora? Um, you know, Friday, first of like, the information about God is overwhelming. So I see him as a very critical person. If Paul wasn't there, who is the next person who would have an equal way to spread the gospel? We didn't have a Paul. Paul uh, would be St. Peter. Yes, Cora's question is that Paul's uh, teachings and the force within them is overwhelming. And that's true. And if it wasn't for Paul, who would it be? Is that what you're saying? If it wasn't for Paul, who would it be? And it would have been Peter. Because the next important letter in uh, the form of doctrine is uh, Peter's first letter within the gospel, uh, within the New Testament. I understand that uh, after the death and resurrection of Christ, the apostles went out to teach. Yes. To all, all different parts of the known world. Yes. Now, as Paul is traveling around, wouldn't he have a chance to talk to some of the apostles? But he doesn't seem to indicate that. In fact, he goes out of his way to say he didn't talk to them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and whether he ran up against them, you know, bumped into them or what, we don't know, uh, except for at the council of uh, Jerusalem, he did spend some time there, and he did spend some time with Peter, but not a long period of time where he could have learned all that he was teaching from that. Um, in his earlier life, he was going along with every single thing, and so his whole way of learning and, and teaching and would be by the law. Yeah, well, he, yeah, he went by the book, uh, by the book. very, very strictly. Yeah. And again, from the infusion of all of this information and from those revelations, you know, he took that and with all of this uh, enthusiasm and really wanted to go out and force it on everybody. Uh, it's interesting because 
Paul is extremely forceful in his first letter, right, his first and second Thessalonians, first and second Corinthians, and then as time goes on, you can see he's beginning to soften. And by the time he gets to the pastoral letters, he is very different. Uh, the letter to the Philippians is all about humility. And Paul had absolutely no humility in the beginning. So you can see the conversion of Paul within himself over a period of time. And as far as the last two or three letters that he wrote were from prison in Rome, uh, where he was able to, to write and get this information out, he is extremely humble. All right? Not because he's a, a prisoner, but because he has learned that love is the most important uh, teaching of Jesus Christ. And he devotes a whole long chapter in his first letter to the Corinthians on the subject of love, uh, chapter 13. But it isn't really until the book or the letter to the Philippians that you really begin to see a softening in Paul's attitude. All right. Otherwise, he's coming down, you know, full bore uh, in the beginning. And in a way that is probably what God wanted, because it took somebody with a great deal of force to get people to see the difference between what Christ was offering his followers, that is, eternal life, the satisfaction of the great sacrifice of his death on the cross in reparation for sin. Now, these people, the Jewish people knew what a sacrifice was for. They had several different kinds of sacrifices. If you read uh, the book of Leviticus, you'll see that they had many different offerings, including one that was bread and wine which was a thanksgiving offering. And that is why our mass today, offering bread and wine back to the Father in thanksgiving for his infinite love and the fact that he gave us something in the form of a God-man that we could give back to him in reparation for our sins. Remember, Jesus Christ came for several reasons. One to help us understand who the Father was and what he was. And the fact that the Father was loved, not when you read the kind of God that the Jewish people thought he was and is often depicted in the Old Testament as one that is going to hear what you have to say and if he doesn't like it, He's going to squash you like that. That is not who God is. So, Jesus wanted us to learn that. He also came to represent mankind, all of us, in giving himself back to the Father in the sacrifice on the cross in reparation for sin. And that is what we'll get into next week when we talk about justification. Uh, he also wanted to open up a whole idea of the Trinity 
And these are the things that Paul taught because he couldn't teach all the little stories that are in uh, the Gospels that we read today because they weren't written yet. And so he was limited to who was Jesus Christ and why did he come to earth? Why did God himself, in the form of a man, come to earth only to die? And that was another problem. The Jewish people particularly, the non-Jewish people accepted the fact that God would offer himself and die on the cross. The Jewish people couldn't have. Because they felt that God would never do such a thing. And their idea of a deliverer was a deliverer from the Romans, not deliverer from sin. So Christ's idea was foreign to the Jewish people, and that's why they refused to accept it. Furthermore, he was, according to them and their standards, non-educated. If he was not educated by somebody such as Gamaliel, or, or some recognized authority, then whatever he said was never accepted. Uh, then what they wanted was to be liberated from the Romans. They could care about this everlasting life thing. Uh, that was foreign to them entirely. And even today, many of them do not accept that. It's unfortunate. But they have so... Uh, instilled in their minds that this man Jesus Christ was wrong and that their idea of God was right, that they're not going to open their minds and hearts. And yet we ourselves must open our minds and hearts to who Christ was and is. And we can only do that through prayer. Prayer is the way that we develop that same infusion that Paul got from the Holy Spirit. Prayer is the way that we communicate with God and he communicates with us. Now, when I say prayer, I don't mean just reciting the Hail Mary or the Rosary or even going to Mass. The going to Mass is fine. It is, the Mass, is, of course, is the greatest of all prayers. But sometimes we go for the wrong reasons. Sometimes we go out of habit rather than to worship. Sometimes we go and we say that the mere fact that we were inside the church satisfies all the rules. Uh-huh. Just because we are inside the church doesn't mean a thing. That is not what worship is. And you often hear people say, well, I don't go to church anymore. I don't get anything out of it. You're not supposed to get out of it. You're supposed to give. And when you give, that is your mind and your heart, and your time. If you give it willingly out of love for God, then he returns that love, and that's when you get something back far, far greater. So whenever you hear people say, well, I don't get anything out of the woman, I have to say, what did you give? Of course, the first thing they're going to say is, you know, what did you put in the collection? <laughs> That's not what we mean, okay? What did you give from your mind and your heart? 
Now, we used to have a priest over at St. Rose. For those of you who have St. Rose, you might uh, remember Father Clancy. The first, one of the first things he would say before starting Mass is, what did you bring to give to God? Do you remember that? Um, I always thought that that was really a very piercing question. Because... Most people wouldn't have even thought of what are they bringing to God when they go to Mass. And that's exactly what the Mass is for. The Mass is a sacrifice of thanksgiving for what the Father has given us through Jesus Christ. And what we have to do is to go and give our thanks and our allegiance, and our loyalties, and our love to God, back through Jesus Christ. So, we're getting a little off the track. Any questions? You're all spellbound, yes. Moses set up a law, a law that stated that you could not drink any blood of any animal. Right. And that's understandable. That is a law of hygiene rather than devotion because of that period of time, especially when they were wandering in the desert for 40 years, you never knew what animals would pick up and it would be transmitted in the blood, okay? But as time went on, that took on a totally different reason. And the people began to believe that if you consume the blood of an animal, you would become like the animal. All right? So, either way, it was a big no-no. Didn't start out that way but it evolved into a misunderstanding of the why. The rule was still good, but the why was not. All right? Now, Christ comes and he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will not have life in you. He's taken the same idea and changed it around by saying, you will have my life in you. And that's what he wanted. So, when we go to communion, receiving the body and blood of Christ, it is for the purpose of having divine life within us. And if you think about it, when you have the divine life of Jesus Christ within you, should you not keep yourself clean and pure as best you can? And that doesn't last for 10 or 15 minutes. It lasts until the next time you come. All right. But I remember, and we often call this, 
the liturgy of the parking lot. People can't wait to get out of church so they can get their car out first. All right? They forget that the divine light is within us. And that is something that we all have to think about. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to walk with pearly music, you know, or something like that. We had a little story about this lady who would come up to communion very devoutly and so forth and so on. But as she received it, she'd go right out the door. This happened time after time after time. So the pastor said to two altar boys, the next time she does that, I want you to take lighted candles and follow her. <laughs> and they followed her all the way to the courage. And she said, what are you doing here? What are you doing now? Well, Father so-and-so told us. So she sort of ignores it. The next time she goes to Mass, Father says, so the two older boys with lighted candles, closed, they follow her. She can't stand it any longer. So she says, goes back into the priest, what are these two altar boys following me for? And he says, well, because you have left the church with God within you. And that really gets her. And we should think of it that way. Because that's true. God is within us. So should we, in our attitude, and our actions, and particularly our speech, not reflect that? That's what Catholicism is all about. That's why we're here. Just to reflect the teachings and the life of Christ. Yes, sir. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, wait till I get closer to you. I'm sorry. That's all I These were all differences, right? They didn't like each other. Paul and Peter. Paul and Peter, yes. They, well, they have differences. But they, they Paul fully recognized Peter's authority and they fully reconciled? Yes, they did. Yes, Paul uh, and Peter reconciled. And, you know, it is not wrong or it's not a problem when two good people don't quite agree on everything. Uh, that doesn't mean that one's right and one's wrong. It just means that they're individuals with slightly different opinions. But Paul always gave credence um, to, to Peter as the head of the apostles. Very important to understand. Thank you. The Greek Orthodox Yeah, Greek Orthodox, I'm sorry. Do they recognize Peter also? Uh, the Greek Orthodox, the Greek Catholics do. Not the Greek Orthodox. Yeah. Yeah, and the, the interesting uh, differentiation between the two is that the Greek Orthodox have a patriarch in Constantinople, or Istanbul today, uh, where there are several, like the Armenians, uh, the Byzantine Rite, and several others, about seven different divisions of Greek Catholics. So 
you got to separate the two. Would you explain how one uses the term justification or righteousness? Well, I would like to do that, but if you could wait till next week, that's, oh, okay. that's the main subject of next week. All right, and it's an important subject, so uh, let's let's hold it till next week. Okay? Yes, the lady asked about. Uh, the use of the word justification or, or righteousness, which is, is the same meaning. Uh, for a long, long time, Catholics would not use the word righteous because that was Protestant. Well, we're trying to do away with those little uh, differences because they no longer exist. The words essentially are the same. And it is really the main uh, subject of the book of, uh, or the letter to the Galatians, and it is repeated in the letter to the Romans. Now, why did Paul write these letters? It's important that you understand. As we said earlier, all of these little house churches were established not only by Paul, but by other apostles. Now, they didn't trip over each other or interfere with each other's territory. Okay? A lot of people say, well, why did Paul only convert people in a certain region? Well, it's because the other apostles went to other places. All right? But in all of these places, little differences started to creep up here and there. And in the area of Paul's preaching and teaching, etc., he gets really upset about it. And so he is sending this letter to correct those people who listen to the uh, converts from Jerusalem who tried to explain that they had uh, to go through the light of circumcision and be good Jews before they could be good Christians. Uh, that was totally wrong, and Paul gives it to them with both barrels, so to speak. That's the reason for the letter to the Galatians. Now, you'll see a lot of repeating of the same information in the letter to the Romans. Romans followed very quickly in time after Galatians, but it was written for a different reason. It was written to people that Paul never knew at all. Contrary to those in Galatia, Paul had never been to Rome by this time. He did later, but not at this time. He had not been to Rome, but he had intended to go not only to Rome, but to go uh, westward to Spain. And he was hoping to establish uh, contact with people in Rome, the Roman uh, Jewish converts as well as uh, converts from whatever else was there, uh, and to establish a contact there who would support him in his travels to Spain. Well, that never happened. He eventually did get to Rome, but it was in chains as a prisoner. Uh, but he writes this letter from Corinth, 
to the Roman people, and he's so fired up from writing this letter to the Galatians that he wants to kind of cover the same information and get into a little bit more of his overall teaching, uh, and he sends it off to the Romans. Well, it is written in such a way, you know, uh, it's not a kind of a letter that you would want to write to try to win friends and influence people. <laughs> uh, there is not a lot of uh, how are you and the hope all is well in your area and so forth and so on. He gives it to them pretty much with both barrels as well. But it is written more or less as a uh, document of authority. It is the letter to the Romans is often called uh, Paul's masterpiece. And it really is. It is the first major writing of Catholic or Christian theology. A little crude in some areas, but nevertheless, it is the first major documentation of Christian theology. And it is looked upon really as the basis for much of our other uh, doctrines that we have, as well as dogma. What's the difference between dogma and doctrine? You're all afraid to answer, <laughs> Dogma is the essence of our Catholic belief. Doctrine is a little bit less than that, but is an explanation of all the other things that we believe in. We must believe the dogma in order to be Catholics in good understanding. But as I said, all, doctrine, all dogma is doctrine, but not all doctrine is dogma. Okay? Slightly lower level. Alright? Important. Now, a lot of people will say, well, I don't like all the rules that the Catholic Church has. I would not look at them as rules, but rather as structure. You cannot have any organization without structure. And we have to have a declaration of what we believe in and why. And that is our catechism. I don't have a copy of it here today, but I can bring one in. The Catechism of the Catholic Church outlines all of the doctrine and dogma that we believe in. It does not go into a lot of detail, but it is very interesting, and I would highly recommend it for all of you. Any questions? Yes, June? What would you call, what would you say that we couldn't well, format, format, you have to understand why, and that rule does still exist, you know. Remember years ago, before Vatican II, we could not eat or drink anything after midnight of the 
day that we were going to receive communion. That was changed by Vatican II and down to three hours. And then later it was changed to one hour, simply out of courtesy and recognition of what we are about to do. Well, if you deliberately said, I know it's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyways, you know, that's when a sin becomes, or that's when an action becomes a sin. Is when you know something is wrong, even though you understand why it's there in the first place, and you do it anyways. Most of what we believe in is structure, not so much dogma. And that's one of the things that Pope Francis is trying to get people aware of and to loosen up a little bit. It's not so much all those little nuances uh, that creates the, the problems and keeps people away from the more important things. And that's what he wants really for them to see and start uh, looking at things a little differently. He's not going to change the basic doctrines or dogmas. He's going to change how we look at them and how we observe them. Don't ask him how they did it. Let's <laughs> end with a prayer. Father, we thank you for bringing us together to share our understanding of Holy Scripture particularly Paul's letters to the Galatians and Romans. Help us now to see how we can benefit through our actions, our speech, etc., in being a better Catholic. Help us also to understand that it is only through prayer that we can absorb what you want for us as our role in your plan of salvation. So we ask for your strength and the grace and the inspiration to be what you want us to do. So we thank you for this time. We thank you and praise you in all things.